It's episode 68 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program, my old friend Mike Montero returns to discuss his new book, Ruined by Design. We'll talk about whether the design industry needs a set of ethical standards and the ways in which those standards might be enforced. Mike, thanks for coming back. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing really well. I, I, uh, I appreciate you coming back to the show. Well, it is always a pleasure to be invited on the show and an honor, and uh, I'm very happy to be back and always, always happy to talk to you because you're so smart. Well, I appreciate you saying that as well. Uh, you know what? It is 101 degrees in London right now. Wow. Do you want to know what the weather is here? Uh, you're in San Francisco? Yes. I don't know. It was like 65 degrees. I'm going to look it up just to make sure I'm right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's 65 degrees. <laughs> this is, uh, this is, I think the hottest it has ever been in London. I think we're breaking all kinds of records. It's absurd. It's crazy. I think it's 107 in Paris. Jeez. Yeah. Anyway, um, I just turned off my fan, uh, so we don't pick it up on the podcast. So I'm going to sit here and, and sweat through this one. This will be nice. We'll keep it short to make sure that, you know, because you're old now. and <laughs> I can't, can't take the heat. Uh, hey, look, I've been reading your book, by the way. You, you wrote this new book. It's called Ruined by Design, which I think is a great title. Thank you. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm about halfway through, so I'm not going to fake. You can tell me how it ends. That's fine. Um, but uh, you're really onto something here. This is good. Well, and I thought. Thank you. I, I thought this would be a good thing for us to uh, chew on here a little bit on the podcast. Happy to. What mo I was going to say what motivated but you to write it, but I think I know the answer to that. Uh, you've been a little bit frustrated with how things have been uh, playing out in our uh, in our industry. I've been yes. Should I elaborate? Uh, <laughs> I think so. Well, here's here's here's. I mean, you and I go way back with this internet crap, and I think both of us remember a time when. We talked about, you know, the internet with a lot of hope and how it was going to, you know, change a lot of things and for the better and how it was going to, it was going to bring people together and how it was, you know, going to make it possible for us to, to all, you know, speak to each other and make sure that, you know, that, that the one, that, that kid who, who was growing up in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and, and didn't know anybody like him could, could meet somebody like him and know that they weren't alone. And, you know, if you were an artist or a poet or a musician or a writer, you could get your stuff out there where other people could see it and you wouldn't need, you know, the man to, you wouldn't need anybody's approval to do that. And it was going to usher in this, this new era of, of, uh, uh, kumbaya togetherness. I remember those days. That's, and that's, those are the, those are the reasons why I decided, heck, let's try this internet thing. It's going to be amazing. I mean, to me, the internet was like the next logical extension of punk rock. Yeah, I could see that. You just, you, you just did stuff. Very much uh, following uh, the DIY zine culture, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't, we didn't just need make any, it. I mean, right? Just make it. Like, just pick up an instrument. You'll figure it out while you're on stage. <laughs> just you know, 
and and I mean, how did you, how did you and I both learn how to code? Like like crappy ass text editors, and you know, looking at other viewing other people's sources and stealing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Many many years ago, I wrote a book to try to figure it out. I thought, oh, I read that book. That'll that'll be one way to make sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right. I read that book when I was, you know, when I was still like curious about this internet thing. And, and that, that's the half face book, right? Uh, that's yes. I had a couple of them and then yeah, one of them. Yeah. And, but I, but we you know when I first got onto this internet, that's what it was about. We were going to do all of this stuff and you know, now 25, 25 years, yeah. 25 years later, I mean, you look around and it's like, oh boy, did, did we leave the stove on? What we messed up. <laughs> yeah. uh, that is true, but it is also true that all the things you said earlier uh, came to pass. They did. They did. But I don't know. But but other bad things came to pass as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I completely we agree. All we all ran so fast and head first into doing and th- figuring out how to do things. And I mean, that's true of any industry that's just starting out. Just get out there and do it that, you know, we didn't stop to ask ourselves what could happen um, if either it went wrong or the wrong people got a hold of it. You know, it's like the Oppenheimer curse. Yep. You know, you figure out how to split the atom and then you realize what people do with that atom once they've split it and and you're not happy about it. Mm. And your premise for the book is that designers in particular are situated uh, in a place to affect the most change around these, uh, the direction that our digital technology is taking us. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes and no. I think designers are situated in a very good spot to affect change. I think, uh, I think uh, lots of people are, but I can only write from the point of view of a designer to other designers. Maybe, maybe it's a, uh, maybe a different character or characterization or reframing would be that uh, the skills that designers have can be applied in these ways that you sort of uh, articulate in the book yeah. as a way of saying like, look, we have to, I mean, essentially the, the, the headline here is think before you make it. Right. And let me, let, let me just rewind a little bit to go over what I mean when I use the word design, because that's important. Um, Anybody who has any effect in the tools and services that we build is helping to design that tool and service Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from, you know, from the, the CFO who decides that you only get like half the staff that you wanted to build a thing to the product manager who says you have to do it in, you know, half the time, like all of those people are affecting the design of a thing. So when I'm talking about designing these things, I'm I'm really speaking to everyone in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is though a particular sort of almost uh, to use a cliche, rubber meets the road of this is what we need on the screen. Would you please make that? Yes. Like right. There is also, I mean, absolutely. Uh, this is how. Uh, this is what we want to do with those email addresses. Could you please write that code? Right. Like right. At, at the yeah. So, but um, but what you're talking about is the implementation of the decisions that are made by people that affect the business. The two most important words in design are why and no. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And 
five letters, man, five letters, and we can redefine an industry. So, hey, collect all of these email addresses. Why? And, you know, that doesn't need to be an antagonistic question, but that's an that's an, a question that you need to ask before you do anything. Oh, so we can send them these valuable coupons. Oh, well, okay, that sounds pretty good. Uh, but you got to know why you're doing this stuff. And then, you know, if you ask why enough and you're not satisfied with the answer uh, or you believe that the reasons that, that you're being asked to do something run detrimental to the people who you're designing for, which is the people on the other side of the screen, you got to be able to say no. Yeah. That gets to the, uh, to the exchange of value for your service, right? Like, like the ultimate question of who do I work for? Right. Right. You work for the people on the other side of the screen. Always, always, always. They're not in the room. You have to be their representative. I mean, it's the same thing as like a, a, a chef who's cooking food for, for, for her customers. Like you are responsible for making sure that the people in that room with, all, with where all the tables are, and you may not even see those people tonight. You have to make sure that those people are getting the meal that they believe that they were actually that they're paying for and, and walked in for. And, 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 you know, it doesn't matter, you know, if the restaurant owner is saying, hey, we got a lot of yesterday's fish left. Uh, you you have to put your foot down and say, no, I can't serve. yesterday. I won't serve yesterday's fish. Or if they're saying, well, you know, it's better for our profit if we start, you know, watering the liquor down, you got to say, no, we, we are not that place. We will not do that. Right. I, I can't in good conscience do that to the people who I'm supposed to be feeding. The issue is that in those instances, doing those things would not necessarily be illegal. Right. This is uh, right. one of the arguments that you make in the book is the difference between uh, our industry and other industries. So a waiter that is told to water down the drinks uh, has to make an ethical decision and decides whether or not to stand up to the person that they report to to do so. A designer being asked to, can you just make sure they don't quite realize why they're giving us email addresses because we need those. They're valuable. We're going to save that and we're going to send it later. We don't, we're going to sell it later. We don't really need it. They can say no but they have no legal protection to say no, right? Or, or maybe maybe we're getting close to that with GDPR. But, but at the moment, it yeah. doesn't feel like, like, hey, you're asking me to break the law. Whereas when you talk about the medical profession in your book, you make really good, interesting parallels. Right. But, and, 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 no buts, just ands. There was a time when that wasn't true. I mean, the medical profession is a very mature profession, and it's certainly gone through its ups and downs. And people, I mean, we used to, we, there was a time when we could have walked into, into a, a barber and gotten some minor surgery <laughs> and some dentistry. Um, I think you can but, still you do know, that in parts of London, I think. Yes, yes. And I can, <laughs> I, after we're done, I can give you an exact address if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> uh, industries evolve. Industries evolve and mature, and they get dangerous. There's um, there's a poster hanging in the Facebook office that says Orville Wright didn't have a license. Yeah, yeah. Which 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 I find amazing because I mean that's like their argument against licensing designers, which we can also get into. But the thing that we for well the the point that. <laughs> 
that's so lost with that poster is that when Orville Wright took to the sky, there was no any there was nobody else in the sky with him. And at this point, no, none of us, none of us would dare to get on a plane with an unlicensed pilot. None of us would dare to get on a plane without knowing that that there was like this entire industry, this infrastructure that that works its butt off to make sure that you actually land on the other end and that none of those planes up there in the sky hit each other. And yet when Orville Wright took his flight in Kitty Hawk, it's true, he did not have a license. But an industry gets to a point where it matures and it starts hurting people. And, it, you know, it either starts hurting people because it's it's been negligent or just because it grows exponentially to the point where it needs some some uh, 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 somebody looking out for for the safety of the thing that all of a sudden somebody steps in and says, all right, we need to we need to calm this stuff down. Come here, Orville. We're going to give you a license. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and you're proposing that now is the time. I think we're there. I think, you know, we were there a while ago. And, I mean, I've been talking about this stuff for a while. You have been. Uh, to you know, to to the point where people used to roll their eyes, um, and now people are like, eh, yeah, maybe maybe old man Montero might have been right about some of this stuff. Um, but I think we're there. We're hurting people. Well, just uh, just last week, uh, Facebook was fined five billion dollars for uh, violations of user privacy, and their stock went up. Yeah, the 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 longer context there is that it was eight or nine percent of their revenue for a year, yep. and um, more importantly, I think indemnified them against any previous security breach. Yeah, it basically it's like give us five billion, you can wipe the slate clean. Yep. Yeah, but uh, at least symbolically, um, there was some action. That means that there is at least some acknowledgement that uh, that changes in the air. Yeah, I mean, change is definitely in the air. What scares the hell out of me um, is that is that change is going to happen for the wrong reasons and by bad actors. What do you mean? Well, when I when do you remember Trump's uh, 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 thing a couple of weeks ago? His like really like simple- more specific. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I could have said five minutes ago and I would have needed to be more specific. He had that symposium of like right wing social media bloggers and tweeters and, and oh, all yeah, those yeah. people at the White House complaining that the social followed. media summit, which changed a lot in the last few years. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think both Facebook and Twitter right now are kind of running scared that regulation is going to come. But. Um, I mean, they're they're scared that regulation is going to come either way, but I'm scared because regulation might be coming from the Trump administration based on uh, some very, very cynical reasons. Mm. Mm. I mean, we should have regulated this while Obama was in office. So more of a, um, you know, maybe more something that looks a little bit more like quieting some voices uh, over others. Petty. Well, petty, partisan, and more uh, towards yeah. censorship than regulation, perhaps. Right. Yeah, um, I could, uh, I could, I could only speculate <laughs> on what is going there on there. The European Union, with GDPR, is light years ahead of of taking care of this stuff. You know, just, and they were light years ahead of things like accessibility as well. Uh, that's true. That's true. As a, as a set of regulations, so websites yeah. uh, uh, need to be accessible to I- I- anybody in society. Yeah, for sure. I, there's still, you know, there's still an anti-regulation sentiment 
in the U.S. Uh, that you know keeps us dragging behind all of this on all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you remember reading The Jungle in high school? I do, and I wanted to ask you about that. So, uh, Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair. Actually, I think we should talk about that uh, in a minute, but I'm going to take a little break uh, to uh, pay some bills, if you don't mind. You got to sell, sell a mattress? I, gotta, I, gotta, I don't. I don't. Uh, this is better. This is a product that I have used in the past and feel really good about, uh, and it is one that uh, helps us all take a little vacation. Uh, and that is our friends at Pingdom, uh, which are now part of Solar Winds. Uh, do you know about Pingdom? You must use I it don't. for some use. Oh, all right, ex- all right, all right. We use I'm this all the time. I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. We use this all the time at Typekit, and I'm I'm really glad they're a sponsor. Uh, it is all right. So Pingdom has this network of computers, servers that are all over the world, and you give them a URL of something you want to know: is my website up or is my website down, or is my API working or is it offline? And they will ping those uh, that URL for you uh, at a very regular interval from from areas all over the world so they can check where the networks are and that's all they do they just they just keep pinging it and if something goes wrong there's all these like rules you can set up for who gets notified uh, so they think that you know especially at the summertime when you're you're heading out to you know set your email to out of office and all that and uh, you want to make sure that everything is running smoothly before you leave uh, and more importantly that you can actually kind of check check out a little bit um, and only really be notified if something actually goes wrong and that's what Pingdom does so uh, they'll let you know the the moment your site goes down whatever way is best for you you can get notifications in any possible way you can customize who uh, gets the notification at what time um, and you can decide on the severity of the outage uh, so that when you're out of the office you can totally be out of the office and take a vacation with peace of mind Uh, it's easy to get started Um, like i said all you need is a url uh, you stick it in the box and you push the button and and they set everything up it's great um you can go to, oh, and this is, this is great. You go to pingdom.com slash OOO for out of office. And you go there now, you get a 14-day free trial without even using, getting a credit card. Uh, and when you sign up and use the code presentable at checkout, uh, when you, if you do sign up, your first invoice, 30% off. Uh, and uh, they're doing this little, uh, they've got these out of office t-shirts, which are hilarious. You should go see them. Uh, at, you can see them at that URL, pingdom.com slash OOO. Uh, and if you fill out a form, they'll, uh, they'll uh, enter you in a chance to win one of these t-shirts, uh, which is great. So uh, check it out. Go take a vacation, relax, uh, and know that somebody's watching your website all the time. Thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. What do you think? I think that sounds fabulous. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I like a little peace of mind when I'm on vacation. I'll tell you a little hack. I'll tell you one thing I did at Typekit when we, because I was desperately like selling the idea that like you put, we'll host a fonts for you. They'll never go down. And yep. we, were, we were really good at that. But then I had all of these pingdoms set up to make sure like that, 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 that was true. And I would use these reports and I would show them to people and say like, look, we haven't been down in months and months and months. I also set up. Uh, little pings on all of our competitors too, just to check and see oh. how they were doing. Yeah. So oh, you jerk. So I, what? I, hey, I'm just, <laughs> I just want to know. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, oh, you know, fair. circulate that's, that information or anything, but that. I just, uh, and I'll tell you what, it, my engineers, I would, you know, I would do slides for the team meetings. and like, look at them, look at us. We're doing great. So anyway. Hey, I bet that feel that makes the engineers feel good. It does. It does. It's good. It it's, so, uh, I like but, Mara. We were going to talk about Upton Sinclair. Yes. Uh, you know, I, was, I studied journalism when I was in college. So that, you That's know, right. it was, it was uh, reading The Jungle and it was watching A Few Good Men with uh, like, no, not A Few Good Men. 
All the president's men. Sorry. That's right. Remember all the president's men? I do remember all the president's men. In fact, I watched that recently. I rewatched it. It's so good. It still, it really holds up. We were doing, I mean, we, we had this whole thing where we were watching like old journalism movies. Those are great. And they're, frankly, they're not even that idealistic. You can go watch the post, right? The the one that came out last year. is very good. I really enjoyed the post. And that's a good one too, because it gets right at this issue, right? Like this issue of like, Hey, you can't publish that because we'll go out of business. And right. the and the press uh, the you know the editor rightly saying like hey that's your deal like that's not on me I write the I right. write the stories you and you run the business and we shouldn't even be talking so uh, anyway let's talk about Upton Sinclair and, and you know jur- journalism has always had that very that, that very uh, uh, sharp division between like operations and and editorial and not editorial but um, news yeah and. Journalism has always been advertising run to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. But they've made that, that, that sort of almost a church and state like Zep. Well, I guess right. that's not even a very accurate uh, metaphor anymore, is it? But, um, but yes, no, that very, there's like, there's a wall here. You just, you don't, and you don't cross the line. Yeah. And you can see that distinctly in the post. And I mean, what troubles me now with uh, these 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 uh, online services like Facebook is now the the world's number one media provider in the world, and they think they're a media company, and that line does not exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah, and that's scary as hell. Back to the jungle, yeah. Upton Sinclair. So the jungle was written at the turn of the last century, uh, not the one that we that that uh, some of us we're here for, uh, <laughs> but the 19th to the 20th. And it was about the meatpacking industry. And it was right around the age of refrigeration when we started like refri- uh, making refrigerated railway cars um, and meat was being shipped from like uh, all over uh, America or the, the, the big flat prairies sides to Chicago for right. slaughter. Like Chicago was America's slaughterhouse, yeah. And uh, this the the stuff that was going on in those slaughterhouses was just it was it was bad. It was criminal. Like uh, we were selling bad meat to people. We were making people sick. We were killing people. There, it was tainted. Uh, nobody was looking into how this meat was being made. Uh, and then Upton Sinclair, uh, a journalist. Um, decided to write a book about it, and he wrote it as a novel. Yeah, uh, which got people to read it. So yeah. It was kind of it's pretty great, and it's a really well written novel. But it's also like lays out in detail. Here's what's going on in the Chicago slaughterhouses, and uh, because it was a w- well written novel, people read it, and uh, they started freaking out, and and they stopped eating meat. Which meant that America had America's farmers had a not farmers they're not farmers um, uh, let's call them cattle people. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they had a problem because nobody was buying their meat. So now it was all it, and and it, it made all its way to Congress. And I believe Teddy Roosevelt was the president at the time. It was passed the uh, Safe Meat Act or something. What was it yeah, called? Something and, like that. Yeah, the safe. Let's call it the Safe Meat Act. Um, the Congress passed a bunch of new regulations that made people feel okay about eating meat again. Mm-hmm. The Meat Inspection Act. Is the what Meat it was. Inspection Act. Thank you. Yes, and 
And yeah, right? Like, uh, hey. I mean, this was so the so so the cattle industry. This was you know pretty much like a mom and pop operation. Like if you live near a slaughterhouse, you got to eat fresh meat. And then in came refrigeration and all of a sudden it turned into a national thing. It grew like it scaled as we say now, and it scaled beyond its capabilities of regulating itself. Right. So welcome to the internet 2019. So there's the, uh, there's this famous quote, um, from the book, uh, from the jungle that says, Oh, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. That's right. Oh, I love that quote. I mean, it's the truest quote in the world. And I think, you know, if you take a look at the Zuckerbergs and you take a look at the Dorseys, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like children with deer in the headlights looks on their faces. They, I mean, they are in way over their heads. They don't know what to do. Nobody's ever built anything like this before. And they're, and, and they don't know how to do it. And they're freaked out, but, but they know what it takes to keep making money exactly the way that they've been doing. Well, you can put it really sort of bluntly, right? The more that people, the more tweets people see, the more money Twitter makes. Right. right? And the, an, the angrier people get, the more money. tweets they look at. And and the more vitriolic the tweets are, the more they get passed around. There was an article in BuzzFeed a couple of days ago. Do you remember Chris Weatherall? Yeah, of course. Uh, Chris Weatherall, the very talented engineer who used to work at Twitter, and he um, he's the guy who, I don't know if he came up with, but he built the retweet, or at least he built the retweet function, which may have grown organically. I don't, I don't, man, I don't want to get what's his name in here arguing with us that he came up with the retweet. Anyway, Chris Weatherall was the guy who built the retweet function for Twitter. And he, and his, his quote from that article was we, something like we built a weapon and handed it to a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah. And what's, what's amazing to me is the amount of people who had an active hand, uh, in building a lot of this stuff, uh, are now on like a giant apology tours saying they wish they hadn't done it. Right. There was um, a, a, a VP of something or other, this is in the book, uh, at Facebook, who was asked about um, uh, how does he deal with his kids going on to Facebook, and, and his quote is, oh, I don't let him touch that, that shit. <laughs> yeah. We, we built tools where one of the metrics was figuring out how to addict people to it including children and the people who built it won't let their own kids use it. That's pretty telling. There's a, uh, there's a good example of where this can head. Right. Um, I was, I've been, I've been very, very interested in the, uh, the example you used this in the book as well, a Volkswagen, uh, a couple years ago, maybe, maybe longer, maybe it's five years ago now. Uh, but they the emissions testing, the yeah. emissions testing, they had, uh, written code that could detect when the car was being tested by a government agency or, or however that happens, right? When right. you come in for the emissions test. And it would switch, the, switch all the variables in the engine to be super, super um, efficient. And then as right. soon as the test is unplugged, they switch them all back so you can go fast. 
Yep. And uh, they were essentially polluting. And, and uh, the, the, you know, the, gov- the government regulation, like looking at this, the EPA, right? The Environmental Protection Agency yep. is like, hey, wait a minute. These tests are not uh, cohering with the cars that we've got here. Did a big investigation and figured out that an engineer was responsible for writing the code to say, hey, when you see the test equipment hooked up, use these other sets of ru- these other routines. And that engineer went to jail. 40 months but for writing code for writing. You, we can go to jail for this. Right. I and mean, so, he, and, and, and they, I mean, in court, they had experts come in and say, there is absolutely no way this person could have written this code without knowing it, what it's used for. And that that use was illegal. Yeah. Uh, and I believe the circumstances of the trial were that uh, he was very cooperative and showed lots of regret. And the judge increased the sentence from what the jury was recommending. Yep. Saying, like, I'm, uh, I appreciate you being re- very uh, apologetic, uh, but, man, this is super illegal. <laughs> You're going to jail for a while, buddy. They were sending a message. I mean, that judge was sending a message. And, you know, we need to actually receive that message for it to mean anything. Because, I mean— We've, I mean, my, my major frustration with designers and God, I love you all. Um, but you know, when you're out there saying like my boss told me to do this, I'm, I'm just following the orders that my boss told me to do. I'm implementing what I was told to implement. You can go to jail for that now. Yep. So let's get to, uh, some of the solutions in the book that you want to that, that, that you're sort of proposing. You, you think a, uh, a set of standardized industry-wide uh, ethical standards, uh, guidelines? Uh, that, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about. Every profession that's you know, worth its salt and has been around for a while and is capable of, of doing things that hurt people has a set of ethical standards to follow. Doctors, lawyers, uh, the two main examples, but you know, there's a, there's a, a, a things that you can do and things that you can't do. And those are all taught to, to those people before they get their license, which is another thing that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. So what, 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 what drives me nuts is, you know, when you start talking about having ethical standards to designers and they start freaking out and then you start asking them, uh, about services and professions that they interact with on a daily basis and what if they didn't have ethical standards so when they're on the flip side of an industry without ethical standards they're not having it but they would like to reserve the right to 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 not have ethical standards themselves which is really hypocritical and beyond the pale what is the argument for not having a set of ethical standards when you, when you're out talking about like, Hey, I've, I've written up a set of standards and, and you have, right. You put them on GitHub. We'll put a, yeah. we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You have written up a set of ethical standards and, uh, and you've made them open source and you've posted them everywhere. And you say, we should, uh, a follow these B we should be legally required to follow these and C we should be licensed such that we should not be allowed to practice if we are failing these guidelines and there and there's a d in there too we should improve these yeah yeah because i came up with these with you know the help of a few other people who i'm friendly with but you know one of the things that that i hopefully we're all learning in the last few years is that there are so many things we don't know 
And the more people that we have working on stuff from you know, d- different points of view and different upbringings, the stronger it gets. So please, like, th- these were written by an old white guy and his friends. <laughs> yep. I certainly did not cover every possibility, and I'm blind to most of them. So please make them better. <laughs> um but let's go through that list. Uh, uh, we can talk about the standards in a minute. But uh, but what what is the argument that you hear most often about why we should not do this? It's hard. It's hard. Because it's hard? It's hard. It's another thing. Uh, man, last week was the 50th anniversary of going to the moon. Hard, hard things are hard. And then you hard do Hard things are hard. And, and, you know, we're actually paid to do this. And again, everybody, every, every, every other profession doing the type of shit at scale that we're doing as ethical would you go to a doctor that that didn't you know that hadn't agreed to 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 uh uh uh, uh, uh oh god i was uh, about to say Hammurabi's code uh the hippocratic oath would you go see a doctor yeah. that hadn't agreed to the hippocratic oath right exactly would you go see a doctor that wasn't licensed like would you go see would you get would you go to a pharmacist who wasn't licensed would you would you send your your children to a school with well this one actually gets a little iffy um but you know teachers are licensed to teach children and and you know pilots would you get on a plane with with a pilot who wasn't licensed like we would freak out at any of it like at any of those things, like imagine getting on a plane, you, you you belt yourself in, you're you're about to take off and the pilot comes on and says, hey, guess what, people? I am self-taught and we are good to go. <laughs> um, I would imagine that in the past uh, you have heard an argument around, but the consequences are different. Like I'm, I'm not injecting medicine into people or cutting them open or putting them in a metal tube in the sky. I'm just like making websites for, for, uh, movies and, um, you know, and a a lot of designers are, and God bless them for that. Uh, but the minute that you start collecting people's data, I need, I need to know that you understand what it means to collect people's data. I need to, to make sure that you have given some thought to how to properly collect data and to keep it from getting out. And that you're also, as a designer, if your boss is telling you, hey, go collect these six data points, Mm. and that you're, you know, going through, you know, the the scope of this project that you're working on and and realize, you know, we actually only really, we're going to use two of them, so why are we getting six? I need to know that you're willing to have that conversation with your boss. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. So here's, yeah, here's the thing, right? Like we have... Uh, over here, the GDPR, and actually, to be honest, American companies are, are uh, if they're doing, if they're having traffic from Europe, are, are re- held responsible to the same standards of how that yeah. data is used, uh, and that uh, has significant legal consequence, right? If you yep. if you if you misuse that data or uh, don't keep it safe up to a set of standards, and uh, and you can find penalties and stuff like that but the designer who made the form does not go to jail but 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 i think what we're talking about is that like the volkswagen precedent where like with such a breach of uh such a such a uh, arrogant breaking of the law uh that there's precedent for this to happen that we could be yeah. heading down this path 
that to the person who is actually tasked with the implementation, uh, the word I think you like to, work, to use is the labor could also be held accountable for the decisions uh, done in the boardroom. Yeah, your labor is your consent. Interesting. And you know, there's there's a step before sending people to jail. I'm 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 trying to like God. Can you imagine mass incarceration of designers? Uh, so much crying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could use your lose your license if you're not going to work in an ethical manner. You will lose your license to practice. That is what happens in any other profession. Yep. You know that Bill Clinton can't practice law. Uh, I was unaware. Well, you remember that whole kerfluffle where he was impeached? No, he lost his license. The the American Bar Association decided that how he behaved in that situation was unethical as a lawyer. They took away his license and he cannot practice law. Hmm. (laughs) I'm I'm living for for a world where uh, we can take away a designer's license. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh, you designed a database that that rounds up immigrants for ICE. We're just going to take that license away from you, so you can't do that anymore. By the way, that happened at Palantir. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that story. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the guidelines you've written. Uh, the guidelines were written to, you know, they're written to be fairly easy to follow, and you know, I don't, I'm. The idea here is that you set a path for designers to actually help them. The whole point of this book is to help designers do a better job, not to not to yell at them or make them feel terrible. I want them to actually feel good about what they do on an everyday basis, and I want them to feel like like they're backed up. I think there there are designers out there right now who want to do the right thing, who want to behave ethically. I need them to know that somebody's looking out for them and someone has their back. I mean, if there is one thing that this book does is it helps designers who want to do the right thing feel less alone. I, you know, I have no doubt that there's, you know, designers out there who just want to make money regardless, but I don't think that's the majority. I actually think that's a very small minority. They're not going to change their minds. This book is not going to get them to change their minds. I think there's a vast middle, a a big fatty bell curve middle of designers who want to do the right thing and are looking for some guidance, uh, are looking for some support, are just looking to feel like they're not the only ones in their company who want to do that. This book is for them. I think that's um, that's really what it what it all comes down to is this uh, almost like a sense of leverage, uh, like a protection, right? I can imagine a set of guidelines, ethical guidelines that are based on a set of enforceable laws, right? To try to reduce as much ambiguity as possible, such that when the conversation happens, when somebody who has the ability to prioritize your work comes to you and says, I want you to do this thing. You can say like, Hey, uh, I could lose my license. Right. I could lose my license. I could get fired. You're asking me to do, do, I could go to jail. You're asking me to do a thing that's illegal. 
Yeah, and I mean that's what happens with in other professions now. I mean, the the let's say the director of the hospital acts, asks a doctor to do something that goes against their ethical code, and I I cannot do that. I've pledged to follow this code, and I could lose my license if I don't follow that code, and that means I can't practice medicine. I'm I can't put that at risk. Right now, a designer who would be trying to do the same thing has absolutely no leverage against an employer. Hey, we, we made this deal with this pharmaceutical company. I need to move like 200 cases of this drug. It's not going to really, if there's not that many side effects, could you just like a few more extra here and there? A couple of people to cough, you know, like, could you do that for me? Right. No, I'll lose my license. Lose I'll go my to license. jail. I'm not willing to go to jail so that you can, you know, meet your profit margin. Yeah. And you know, there's things that we need to do that, that even go outside this ethical code. Like, there are three major problems, and I, this isn't tied to designers, but to workers in America who are keeping them from working as honestly and ethically as possible. And one is that your health care is tied to your employer. Like if I'm working at Facebook and, you know, I'm told to do something that it just sounds shady as hell. And, you know, I've got some sick kids at home or a sick partner. Like I could, I'm, I, I could want to fight them. I could even fight them a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's like, I have to make this choice between behaving as ethically as possible and possibly losing the ability for my, my family to get the medical care they need. And yeah. It doesn't make behaving ethically okay, but holy can we please make it easier for people? Nobody. We should not be putting people in that position. The other one is, I mean, you've got, you know, 20, 23, 24-year-old kids going to work at companies like this, and they're saddled with like 100 grand in debt from school. And, you know, you got this nice job that's going to pay you a ton of money and help you pay back what what's, looks like an insurmountable amount of debt at that age. I mean, at my age, that would look like an insurmountable amount of debt. And all of a sudden, you're in that same position and you're like, God, if I lose that job, how am I going to pay down these student loans? We got to help with that. Hmm. And then you've got. I don't know what the percentage of tech workers in Silicon Valley who are here on H-1B visas right now, but it's pretty high. And those are tied to your employer. And, you know, if if you run afoul of your employer, you could lose the, the right to be in this country completely and get shipped off to a country which, you know, might even be worse than this. So that's it. We just healthcare, student debt, uh, immigration. Healthcare, student debt, immigration reform. We got, we have got to make it easier for workers to be able to work as well as they want to, to do their job as well as they want to. I mean, can you imagine being 24 and saddled with a hundred grand in debt? I mean, you're going to do some shit. I, I, when I graduated from college, I owed seven grand and I remember crying on my front steps because there's no way I'm ever going to pay that off. Seven grand. We got to make it easier for people to do the jobs that they were hired to do, the jobs that they were asked to do the day that they were hired. And that job doesn't, shouldn't be defined by your employer as much as it's defined by, by, by the profession that that you're associated with 
Like your hospital cannot tell you how to be a doctor. I like that. Your law firm does not tell you how to be a lawyer. You came in with that, that set of skills. And when I get hired by a company to be a designer, I have to be the I have to behave like a designer. And you know, other people that we work with, like an accountant, like you've worked at places with accountants, they come in and they have to behave like accountants. And there's a wrong way to be an accountant and a right way to be an accountant. And you do not get to define how account your your, your CEO does not get to define how accounting works. Otherwise, you end you end up in jail. Generally accepted accounting principles. Yeah. Yeah. There should be generally accepted design principles too. <laughs> but not but not standardized. Not standardized design. I don't care if they're the ones in this book. I don't care if somebody else comes up with them. I'm sure that somebody could come up with better ones. But my we, you know, at the end of the day, we have so much untapped power and potential as designers. The power and potential to shape the things that we work on, to shape the world that we live in, to help the people who need our labor the most. And we act like we don't have that power and potential. We act like we're indentured servants of these companies because they're holding us hostage with with healthcare and student loans and immigration bull****. That's the end of my rant. It was a good rant. I think we're going to leave it on that note. I think that was fantastic. Right. There's there's uh, much more in the book. The book is called Ruined by Design. You can find out more about it. Uh, ruinedby.design is the website. Uh, there's a link to that down in the show notes. You should, I just think everyone should go grab a copy. It's an important one to have. Um, it's important Thank time you. and it's an important time to be, uh, uh, to kind of getting your head in and around, um, a lot of the stuff we we're talking about today. So, uh, more from Mike over at muledesign.com. Uh, and, oh, you're writing for the new, um, the, the, the new publication that medium is doing called modus. That's right. I am. I'm writing for Modus. It's been swell. I've been doing it for a few months at this point. Um, you know, I, I've always been a fan of that Ev fella. Um, and uh, when they asked me to write for, for Modus, I was thrilled. Evan Williams, a smart guy. Yeah, he really is. Very thoughtful. He is. Very thoughtful young man. Well, so are you. And you're proving it uh, <laughs> over and over again. Oh, God, none of us are young anymore. <laughs> And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.